as I mentioned yesterday, I thought I'd read a few passages from this uh, second discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Sabhasava Sutta, uh, particularly in the light of the, the various readings um, relating to uh, choiceless awareness, bare attention, and so forth, and uh, so sort of, you know, counterbalancing that aspect of mindfulness with um, making skillful choices. And so this uh, this sutta, Sabhasala Sutta, relates to that uh, <coughs> that dimension, the different kinds of um, say skillful choices that we can make. So the word asava, <coughs> asava here it's uh, translated as taint. Um, it can also be translated as the outflows. Um, uh, and um, it has a the, the in the um, uh, other translations you have have of it. Uh, it's sometimes rendered as the effluence. Ajahn Tanisro likes to call them the effluence. Uh, I. B. Horner calls them the cankers. So there's a there's a connotations of both flowing and rot in the in the word asava. So it has both of that. So I personally I tend to favour outflow because of that. Anyway, the subjective experience is the mind flowing out uh, into particular uh, objects or uh, or moods and, and getting caught up in them. So that uh, the Buddha in this discourse de- uh, describes various different ways of handling that habit of the mind uh, getting caught up in its outflows. So there's, he says, uh, there are taints that should be abandoned by seeing, taints should be aban- that should be abandoned by restraining. Taints that should be abandoned by using, taints that should be abandoned by enduring, taints that should be abandoned by avoiding, taints that should be abandoned by removing, and taints that should be abandoned by developing. So I won't go through the whole thing, but just to to give you a bit of a sense. So uh, when he says to be abandoned by seeing, he says um, an unwise person who's uh, unskillful, uh, undisciplined, uh, they attend to things that are uh, unfit for attention, and they do not attend to things that are fit for attention. And uh, what are the things that are unfit for attention? Uh, these are such things uh, that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire arises, and the unarisen taint of um, uh, of becoming, of bhava, and the unarisen taint of ignorance that arises. These are things that are unfit for attention that he attends to. Um, and the uh, so then he gives examples um, uh, by attending to things unfit for attention and not attending to things that are fit for attention uh, unarisen taints arise in him and unarisen taints increase this is how he, he attends unwisely then he gives a description of how the mind gets lost in various different kinds of um, metaphysical speculation was I in the past was I not in the past uh, in, in past lives what was I in the past how was I in the past having been what what shall I become in the uh, what did I become in the past what shall I be in the future should I not be in the future what shall I be in the future how shall I be in the future having been what what shall I become in the future or else he is inwardly perplexed about the present thus am I am I not what am I how am I where has this being come from where would it go and um, then he uh, points out how when the mind say, dwells on those kinds of, of um, uh, philosophical speculation, then it, all of that feeds into various different kinds of self-view. And then he contrasts that with when a, a well-taught noble disciple um, 
is skilled and wise, <coughs> then they don't attend to things that give rise to sensual desire, that don't give rise to ignorance or, or the habits of becoming. And then he says, um, uh, how do they attend wisely? They attend, this is suffering, this is dukkha, um, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So rather than, um, say, letting the mind get lost in those kinds of uh, philosophical speculation and opinionating, rather looking at the present experience, like uh, is there dukkha, is there feeling of discontent? If there is, where is it coming from? Um, what's the mind a- attaching to and what's the... Uh, the result of, of uh, letting go of it, and so forth. So then, re- uh, abandoned by restraining, here Bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty restrained, while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained. There are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the eye faculty restrained. So this is the aspect of sense restraint. So... Um, uh, and the language is obviously a bit stylized, as per the usual in the suttas. But what it means is that uh, pay attention to what you're you're looking looking at. What pay attention? What you're listening to? Um, what are you tasting? What are you smelling? What are you touching? Um, if you know that your mind gets gets carried away with um, <clears throat> with say desire about food, then stay away from the kitchen. If it's not the if you're not on the 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 the, the, uh, the cooking team. Um, it, uh, so that you're uh, being uh, attentive to what uh, the uh, the senses are, uh, say, being being put onto, and they're making choices. You know that, uh, as you said, um, uh, and choosing to uh, exercise that capacity to be restrained, to not say um, um, follow impulses to to listen or to 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 look or to touch or to to smell or to taste. Then these ones are abandoned by by using. Um, it's talking about the um, um, uh, the way that we use our food, uh, our shelter, uh, our clothing, and uh, and medicines. Just to to be um, modest in the, the the physical supports for our life. Um, Taints to be abandoned by avoiding. Um, here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely avoid, avoids a wild elephant, a wild horse, a wild bull, a wild dog, a snake, a stump, a bramble patch, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspit, a sewer. Reflecting wisely, he avoids sitting on unsuitable seats and wandering to unsuitable resorts. Like, um, If you have a drinking problem, don't wander around town going past the pubs at, uh, when they're, they're full of people and uh, attractive noises and, and smells. Like that, that you're... You're putting um, uh, danger in your own path. To avoid associating with bad friends, since if you were to do so, wise companions in the holy life might uh, might recognize that was uh, unskillful conduct. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not avoid those things, there are no taints, vexation, and fever in one who avoids them. And so... Uh, the uh, the last one about uh, abandoned by developing is uh, developing the the qualities of the seven factors of enlightenment uh, of mindfulness, investigation, energy, and, and so forth of the seven factors of enlightenment. So that that um, uh, this is all talking about the, how you use your um, your living situation, the choices that you make, and where you choose to go, who you spend time with. Um, uh, where you are, um, say, 
relating to other people? What are you choosing to talk about? Uh, where do you choose to, to, to spend your time? Uh, all of those, uh, those uh, aspects of, of our conduct and our, uh, the way that we structure our world, this is all to do with, with supporting mindfulness so that along with those uh, aspects of, of a bare attention or um, um, that um, you know, choiceless awareness, that it shouldn't be seen that mindfulness does not, imbue, does not involve wise choosing, that you can be mindful of making a choice. <laughs> so that uh, even though Venerable Analeo uh, speaks about you know, sati as just being that, that uh, assessing aspect of it, there's also um, the... Uh, it's, it does, doesn't mean that while you're assessing a situation that then you, you stop being mindful and then you make a choice, but rather... Um, as you are, uh, you, the the first aspect of mindfulness is assessing. Okay, this is a, uh, I've got a, I've got a bit of a, a food issue. So okay, I should stay away from the kitchen. So then you are, um, that you're mindful of making of making that choice and steering away from that, and then also mindful of the results of having steered away from that. Oh look at that! I just all I had to do was just not go into the kitchen, and I've made my my whole morning much easier. Look at that! So it's not like that there's only mindfulness at that preliminary point, but also mindfulness of making a choice and mindfulness as, as the, uh, of having made a choice. And so that uh, it's, um, even though he, he stresses that, that um, preliminary aspect of it there, I just wanted to highlight that it's, it's not just um, in a, a passive mode, because one of the, the, um, the, the ways that... that, that Mindfulness is talked about, and that uh, in in meditation manuals, instructions of various kinds, it can come across that uh, being mindful means being passive. It means being just being aware. And there's a a, a sense that it's often uh, implied: don't do anything. If if you're doing something, you're not being mindful. Or if you're uh, if you're being mindful, you're, you're just watching, just observing, and and, and it. Um, uh, in a way, it it's, uh, exaggerates the aspect of uh, of um, passivity, uh, as if taking an action is somehow an intrusion upon peacefulness, or is somehow uh, uh, not being mindful. But uh, I would say that the as that the initial aspect of mindfulness is assessing the time, the place, the situation, and what's what's being experienced, and then the mindfulness informs the effort, the the choice that's being made, and also that. Uh, uh, observing of what the effect of your choices has been, or, or if if you made a stupid choice, <laughs> you can still be mindful of the effects of how you made a stupid choice. Like, ah, yeah, I'm falling into the cesspit because, you know, I, I thought I could just walk around in the dark without 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 a, a, a torch, and here I am up to my knees in gunk. Aha! <laughs> this is how that's how I got here. I thought I didn't need a torch, but <laughs> now I can I'll remember this. So, yes, Eva. Um, how reliable is their perception as a source of information, though? Because of the just cognitive biases that exist, um, so some of the information will never make it to my perception mm-hmm. because they will not. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how it is, and I think that uh, Buddha described it as vipalasas, that you know that you have a certain view, mm-hmm. 
and therefore you perceive what's supporting of your view, and then it feeds your thoughts, and then it feeds your view, and it basically you're sort of stuck. In <laughs> <laughs> so where, where does mindfulness come into that? Because the information I'm receiving might not be necessarily 100% true. But if you take into account that it might not be 100% true, then that makes you a little bit more cautious. So that you're essentially you do the best you can with what you've got. So it's like if you've got a torch, but your batteries are running out, it's like, ah. <laughs> now, now I think that, that looks like the path there, so let's tread carefully in that direction and, let's see, um, and just test the ground before I, I step on it, because it, that looks like it's the path, but I'm not sure. So you, you, uh, um, you do the best you can with the, with the perceptions as you, uh, as you have, and also, if you know that you happen to be biased in particular ways, or you've got very bad eyesight, or, <laughs> or whatever, and that you, you know, okay, I need to be cautious here, or uh, I shouldn't take that for granted, and then you let your experience inform you. And so it's, it's not a closed loop, I would say. Um, and because every perception is to some degree subjective, because our eyes are... Uh, our human eyes, our ears are human ears, and our um, familiarity with the particular place is going to be uh, limited or dependent. So, um, it, the the knowledge that okay, I'm 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 making a guess here, but uh, let's try this out and see what happens. That's uh, that's essentially what uh, the way of of guiding our our pathway forward. And then, <clears throat> when you do find yourself putting your foot down there's nothing underneath ah right don't put the weight on that foot because there's nothing solid there okay draw back so that then that quality of caution and, and not being too presumptuous not taking things for granted then that that helps to um mean that even if you've you've made a, a an unwise choice you can okay well that uh, <coughs> that that's not solid let's let's try something else Yes. Um, I read the German version so that I already understand it. And I um, got a bit um, a question about it says enduring um, abuse, for example. And there's a whole list of, of what to endure. Yes, it tends to be abandoned by enduring. I, I sort of blurred a few of those together. So enduring. Um, gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun and creeping things endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing and menacing to life um, so that uh, is a, a quality of uh, say, encouraging yourself to be uh, patient to not let the mind go into uh, react, uh, reacti uh, reactivity uh, in relationship to discomfort or being criticized or verbally attacked or, or uh, physically in pain. Uh, it doesn't uh, mean being totally passive, but uh, as it says, um, uh, they, uh, reflecting wisely, they bear cold and heat. So bearing it doesn't mean just being completely numb. It means 
not re uh, not reacting, but uh, and I would say how I interpret that is learning to uh, be patient, to be um, resilient, and to recognize, well, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> I wouldn't have chosen this, but here it is, and that, um, and so that that uh, is counteracting the the um, the habit of of I say fearing and uh, aversion that, that comes from oh, I can't stand this or how can they talk to me like that this isn't fair I, you know I, sort of emotional reactivity and uh, <clears throat> so that that um, that quality of bearing is it's a it's a bearing wisely it's not just a sort of gritting your teeth and, and going numb that's how I interpret it. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It's just probably one of these areas where it's not reacting, but maybe you can respond too. Once, once you know, I'm over my first <laughs> reactions. You know, I don't. Maybe a way to say, well, this wasn't okay. <laughs> yeah, you can. Well, you don't necessarily have to to like it or approve it, but you find that you can not create negativity around it. Like the example that Lumpur Sumedho would give um, very often was when he and I were on a, a tudong um, back in the late 80s uh, through walking through Lancashire. That The first day was absolutely glorious, like today, beautiful sunshine, and blue sky, and sort of puffy white clouds. And, oh, this is nice. Walking along by a canal, so it's all level. <laughs> then we climbed up into the, into the hills, and there was this like horizontal rain, and we just like lashed with this foul weather day after day. And after walking through the the uh, these the hill country in Lancashire, uh, uh, <coughs> we came down to the edges of Morecambe Bay, on the north northwest uh, England. And there was and Lumpur, myself, and Nick Scott. And between the three of us, there was one dry sock, and everything else was soaked. All of our clothes were soaked. Our tents were soaked. The sleeping bags were soaked. Everything was completely wet. And so, and then we, we were really exhausted coming down. And so we had to put up these soaking wet tents in, in the rain. <laughs> and then Lumpur would talk about climbing into a wet sleeping bag. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, every, you're cold and wet and you're climbing into a wet sleeping bag. And he said his mind, and I think it was quite, he spoke, spoke about it in so many Dhamma talks that it must have been quite a profound insight for him because it's like this is absolutely what he doesn't like. You know, Lumpur really likes nice, warm, cosy, comfortable. And <clears throat> it was completely uncozy. <laughs> and he said, yeah, climbing into a wet sleeping bag, <clears throat> he said, when the, the mind says, oh, I can't stand it, this is awful, but when you actually do it, it's not that bad. And it was, I think it was quite a turning point for him because uh, I'm, I'm, here I am li uh, lying in a wet sleeping bag and everything is, is, is uh, soggy and I don't have to create suffering about it. Look at that. So it's that, that kind of enduring, is, you know, particularly if there's, there's no escape. There's no, you, ha you don't have a choice. Then it's a bit easier. If you believe that you do have a choice and it's, more of a challenge. <laughs> Can we negotiate this? Yeah. If you know there's a spare sleeping bag wrapped up in a nice, you know, completely watertight polythene bag, then you'd, you'd be thinking differently. Does this section then lead to the Four Noble Truths? 
Um, uh, that one. It just uh, that particular section. It just says. Um, while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not endure such things, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who endures them. These are called taints that it should be abandoned by enduring. That's all. Then, I mean, the, the last sector is the last section is um, the enlightenment factors, but um, that particular one is just if you endure them, then you don't give rise to vexation. And it, it, uh, uh, I think we've all probably had those kind of experiences where. Particularly when you don't have any choice, then it's easier. <laughs> when you, when there's an illusion of having, or there is a possibility of some alternative, then it's it's harder. It's the the stakes are, are higher. But that uh, I think Longpo mentions that so often because it was so utterly what he wouldn't want. You know, cold, wet sleeping bag, and you've got a, you got know, a cold, wet night ahead, <laughs> and what, exactly what your mind wouldn't want. But then <clears throat> I think, oh. This is all right. I can I can bear this. And also from that same Tudong, he mentions how uh, when we were uh, <laughs> sheltering under this cliff and uh, sort of lashed uh, you know, in a, under a kind of nook where we were not quite being lashed by so much rain, and then Nick got a little fire going and made some tea. And this this uh, tea is in this really sort of grungy billy can and. Um, there was bits of twig and heather and such like had fallen into it, you know, moss and and um, <coughs> and it uh, uh, and it, it wasn't uh, particularly hot. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember this very clearly, and there was sitting, uh, there was all sort of huddled around this this thing with these these little mugs of, of tea, and then Lumpos with his his face absolutely radiant said. Nick, this is the best cup of tea I've ever had. <laughs> you know, it had like twigs and moss and kind of bits of debris floating in it. And it was, you know, it was not the perfect cup of tea, you know, made with fresh spring water and, you know, bo- and boiling from the kettle. But it was, because everything around it was so awful, just something warm in the hands and sweet to drink. Nick, this is the best cup of tea I've ever had. And again, he would talk about that often in Dhamma talks, but... Yeah, if he if he had that the uh, the same the same <laughs> tea uh, in a comfortable situation, oh, this is pretty. This is not even. It's kind of lukewarm. It's got bits of stuff floating in it. But then, because of the situation, it was it was uh, it was absolutely perfect. It was the most marvelous, delightful experience. So he'd use that as a, an example of subjectivity of perception. It's always the same people who ask questions. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was wondering about the re, um, restraining and avoiding. If there isn't sometimes a benefit in on purpose maintaining a difficult situation, I think, for example, with people, if one has someone in one's life that's quite difficult and one could, according to this suggestion of avoiding, mm-hmm. say, okay, I will never talk to this person again because other reason pains come up whenever I talk to them. But maybe also one can learn something about oneself if there's a little bit of irritation that comes <laughs> up or learn to be patient. So what you would think about on purpose exposing oneself to difficult situations? Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's in a way, that's the... Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a balancing act, but that's the essence of the Tudong, the Dutanga tradition. You know, that you're like learning to um, <clears throat> to deal with um, difficult situations, like the uh, the Dutanga practices, like just eating one meal a day. Um, <clears throat> it's living on alms food that you're given in the village. Um, the uh, you know only using three robes to wear and those kind of things. Just um, living under the root of a tree, not using a dwelling. So those Dutanga practices are about stretching uh, food, sleep, dwelling place. Usually, Mother Nature provides enough difficult people that you you don't have to seek them out. Some, sometimes you yourself are the difficult person that you have to deal that you, that you have to live with. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> you, uh, it, it's a balancing act. You know, you you. Uh, you can give it a try and say, okay, well, I, I can see, okay, I'm, I'm avoiding that person. I think this is not skillful avoidance. I, I get a feeling there's some, some you know, absolutely standard aversion here. <laughs> so maybe I should just go against that and, and choose to, you know, I, oh, that, that person that I, I have a lot of trouble with has just volunteered for the washing up. I'll sign up too. Okay, let's try this out. And then, yeah, you can, you can do that and then just see, see what the results are. Uh, but uh, generally, uh, the the Buddha doesn't encourage us to go looking for trouble. You know, enough trouble arises on its own. And uh, like you know, you put your right shoe on your right foot rather than putting the left foot, the left shoe on the right foot, just to say, I wonder what the feeling is like when I got my shoes on the wrong feet. Like, well, it'll be uncomfortable. <laughs> so we don't have to go looking for trouble. Usually, there's enough that uh, presents itself. But it's, it's in a way you have to to get mindful of your own intention. Okay, I, I'm calling this mindfully avoiding <laughs> harmful situations. But is there is there some real negativity there? Is there some blaming and complaining? What's going on here? And then you know, you're look, looking at your own intention and trying to be as honest as as one can be. Yes. Oh, well, it's. Uh, I mean, it can be a, a skillful avoiding or an unskillful avoiding. You know that, uh, as I said, it may be looking at your own intention. If okay, I'm keeping away from a particular situation because th- you know, things are are, um, uh, are challenging for me there. But you have to see. I mean, if if you, if you realize that you make a lot of stupid mistakes if you if you get drunk. It doesn't mean to say, "Oh, well, therefore I should get drunk," and uh, and learn from making those stupid mistakes. Like, well, no, <laughs> it's not. It's not a, that's, according to the Buddha's teaching, that's not a good idea. Um, but uh, if we are bringing mindfulness to our intentions and say, "Well, look, uh, is this just uh, wisely avoiding a, a harmful situation um, that's just destructive, or?" Uh, am I you know, feeding this fearful habit in myself? 
what's what's going on here? And that that kind of exploring, picking it up and, and examining. And then, as I, I was saying to Andres, yeah, Andres, um, how often life presents enough of those opportunities on its own. Just uh, you find yourself landed in one of those situations that you would prefer to get away from, or you prefer not to deal with. Yeah, okay, well, okay. So now here's uh, here's that situation I was trying, I've been trying to avoid. Okay, now how do I work with this? Now, now that it's here and I, I need to to deal with this, how do I work with it? What what does come from this? So that you're uh, even when things happen that you really w- wouldn't have chosen, um, then uh, you uh, you find that you can learn from them, like like illnesses. You know, you wouldn't choose to get a particular illness or, uh, or have a um, that kind of a difficulty, but they arise on their own, and you 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 you, uh, <coughs> you find that when really unwanted or or challenging situations arise, then if you have that attitude of okay, <laughs> this, uh, uh, this is something I really don't want to deal with, but here it is. Then bringing that, that mind of being ready to learn from whatever uh, uh, arises, then that, that's a, a source of great wisdom. And also what, what, what we can learn is, I'm really out of my depth here. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, you know, this is, this, uh, uh, is something that I, uh, I really can't deal with on my own. But at least that, even that can be a useful insight because you can you know, draw upon helpful support from other people and to, to uh, give you the, um, the means to, to work with a situation like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? The, uh, I watched what you said yesterday or the day before about dealing with fear of this time. And it brought something to my mind on the Wednesday night in the Bodhidharma group. We were talking about these anger and reactions to anger, you know? Because it, there's, a local, there's been an incident in a local school where a young child was hurt in a fight critically. He took a bow to the head and was critically injured at 13, you know? And one of the young people in the group was saying that at schools they do a lot of reconciliation work afterwards, you know, when people have had an argument how to reconcile things. But in the youth, and I think this extends across the whole of our society, there isn't that control button anymore which mindfulness activates. There's that everybody seems to have to have a reaction and often it's a very aggressive thing, you know. So I think the things that have come out of this group, you, you know, you've shown people, because you have to live the way you do and you stand out a bit, Really? Well, it just so happens that um, I've, uh, I've got a, a, f- a few little booklets on the Brahma Viharas that are um, about to go into print this year, hopefully. And uh, the way I approach them is through their things that are their opposites or their obstructions. So the one on metta 
It's called I'm Right, You're Wrong. And and think it's about so you're approaching loving kindness through attachment to opinions and aggression and conflict and uh, such like. So to a certain extent, it covers that that uh, some of that territory and uh, <coughs> how um, we contend with each other and uh, loving kindness and uh, that um, finding that uh, quality of acceptance is a part of that learning how to live without contention. Okay, let's <coughs> go back to our main text. So this is a bit of a change of pace now to go to uh, sati and concentration. The continuous presence of a well-established sati is a sorry, the continuous presence of well-established sati is a requirement for absorption, jhana. Without the support of sati, as the Visuddhimagga points out, that's the path to purification commentary, concentration cannot reach the level of absorption. Even on emerging from an experience of deep concentration, sati is required when one reviews the constituent factors of one's experience. Thus, sati is relevant for attaining, for remaining in, and for emerging from deep concentration. Sati becomes particularly prominent when the third level of absorption, jhana, is reached. With the attainment of the fourth absorption, when the mind has reached such a degree of proficiency that it can be directed towards the development of supernormal powers, sati also reaches a high degree of purity because of its association with deep, deep equanimity. So this is talking about a whole different dimension of, of mindfulness and particularly in relationship to the aspect of, of concentration. Several discourses testify to the important role of Satipatthana as a basis for the development of absorption and for the subsequent attainment of supernormal powers. And I should make a footnote here. So even though he, he mentions about uh, absorption and supernormal powers and such like here, this is a, a, an area that, uh, that uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, Lumpur Sumedha would generally um, not emphasize or not make a, a big deal about certainly the, the supernormal power side of it because um, that uh, is generally outside the scope of most uh, 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 most meditators, most people interested in the practice and also not something that is of, uh, that Lumpur Cha would ever see of being a particular significance or, or, or benefit. Um, when he would talk about absorption or deep states of concentration he would avoid talking about particular levels or uh, attainments but um, just try to, to de-emphasize that sense of, of having attained something or got something or achieved because of that, the, the negative effects of, of the, the, the gaining mind and the competitive mind of, uh, or the, uh, the, um, the effects of um, speaking about uh, attainments or, or um, stages of development. He saw that often the mind grabs hold of that and makes a whole big... A deal of it, and that that of that grabbing of of it, obstructs any real concentration and any real peacefulness. <laughs> so he would emphasize and teach the the method of concentration and encourage uh, deep concentration and a, a commitment to the to the practice and purification of of mind. Certainly, and, and anyway, 
instruct us in the tools of how to focus the mind, but he didn't like to talk in terms of um, stages of uh, of development or um, what particular results you are going to get from it, um, but rather just you know doing the practice and letting things take shape as they do. So that um, um, that's a sort of uh, 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 an aspect of it that I feel is useful to, to bear in mind, particularly in the context of, of this community and the Lumpur Chah, Lumpur Sumato's um, way of speaking about the, the practice. The role of Satipatthana in supporting the development of concentration is also reflected in the standard expositions of the gradual path, where the preliminary steps that lead up to the attainment of absorption include mindfulness and clear knowledge, Sati Sampajanya, in relation to bodily activities and the task of recognizing the hindrances and supervising their removal, an aspect of the fourth Satipatthana, contemplation of Dhammas. The progression from Satipatthana to absorption is described in the Dantabhumi Sutta, that's the, the grade of the tamed, with an intermediate step. In this intermediate step, contemplation of the body, feelings, mind and dhammas continues with a specific qualification that one should avoid having any thoughts. In the instruction for this transitional stage, the mental qualities of diligence and clear knowledge are conspicuously absent. Their absence suggests that at this point the contemplation is no longer satipatthana proper, but only a transitional stage. This thought-free transitional stage still partakes of the same receptive observational quality and of the same object as Satipatthana, but at the same time it marks a clear shift from insight to calm. It's subsequent to this shift of emphasis from Satipatthana proper to a state of calm awareness that the development of absorption can take place. So uh, as we go on over the next couple of paragraphs, he talks more about what is meant by concentration and what is meant by by uh, mindfulness in general, and so that, that uh, he'll spell that out in more detail just in, in a moment. On considering these instances, it is indubitably clear, that means without a doubt, another good word, by the way, Venerable Analio is German, he's not English, but he's got a very uh, comprehensive English vocabulary. He might have had some help writing this book. But, uh, he has a very broad uh, English vocabulary. So, <clears throat> on considering these instances, it is indubitably clear that sati has a crucial role to fill in the realm of samatha, or calmness. This might be why the Chula Vedala Sutta speaks of satipatthana as the cause of concentration, samadhi nimitta. The relation between satipatthana and the development of deep concentration is exemplified by the monk Anuruddha, foremost among the Buddha's disciples in the supernormal ability of seeing things in other realms of existence. An ability based on a high degree of proficiency in concentration. Whenever asked about his abilities, Anuruddha invariably explained that his skills were the outcome of his practice of Satipatthana. An interesting observation. On the other hand, however, to consider Satipatthana purely as a concentration exercise goes too far and misses the important difference between what can become a basis for the development of concentration and what belongs to the realm of calmness meditation proper. So Satipatthana as a basis 
for helping concentration to be developed. Um, and then also, the, and then the uh, as contrasted to the the um, uh, practice of of concentration or samadhi itself. In fact, the characteristic functions of sati and concentration samadhi are quite distinct. While concentration corresponds to an enhancement of the selective function of the mind uh, by way of restricting the breadth of attention. Sati on its own represents an enhancement of the recollective function by way of expanding the breadth of attention. And um, he has a little footnote here and quotes various different teachers and meditation teachers and writers on this, um, including Dan Goldman and Bhante Gunaratana. And as he says, uh, Bhante Gunaratana aptly sums up, concentration is exclusive. It settles down on one item and ignores everything else. Mindfulness is inclusive. It stands back from the focus of attention and watches with a broad focus. So those of you who are familiar with Lumpur Sumedho's teachings, he talks about uh, concentration as the point which excludes and mindfulness as the point which includes. So that uh, so concentration is you, you, uh, you focus on one thing and then screen out everything else apart from that one thing that you're attending to. Uh, whereas mindfulness, uh, so the, the so that's the point that excludes everything else. But the point that includes is rather like making the entirety of the present moment. What is the the point? So that you expand the point um, of attention to uh, be inclusive of a, a all, well not every aspect of the present, but a, a much broader range of qualities uh, of the present. So that's a, an e- a simple direct way of of uh, understanding these qualities. So samadhi is the point which excludes and sati is the point which includes. Martin, yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't understand uh, what you said at the beginning of the last few things um, of seeing, seeing things in other realms of existence. Yes. What does that mean? means being able to look into the heavenly realms See what the devas are up to. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> hmm? Well, according to Buddhist cosmology, there are numerous realms of existence other than the uh, the realm that we perceive with our human eyes and ears, and um, so that uh, th- these are not things that I personally have seen or, or known with uh, my eyes and ears and my perceptions, but they're spoken of very very freely in terms of the Buddha's experience and the in the scriptures uh, uh, in copious um, amounts of, of uh, detail in many many instances so heavenly realms hell realms uh, different uh, zones of, of existence different dimensions so just as at this moment um, I cannot perceive radio waves passing through this hall if you had a radio that you would, and we turned it on, then we could probably listen to Radio 4 right now. Find out what the, the, the cricket scores are. Or, um, so that it's a, 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 um, uh, a capacity um, called the, the Dibba Chaku is the heavenly eye, or the Dibba Sota uh, is the heavenly ear, so able to hear what's going on in different realms of existence or to be able to see. So Venerable Anuruddha uh, was reputed to have the greatest proficiency in 
being able to uh, tune into those different dimensions from the That's what it means. Yes, Mariana. Yeah, may I ask about, uh, is it um, concentration very much subjective and mindfulness is more of an objective and the bridge between subjective and objective is uh, the moment when you become Union with others. Um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it like that myself. So much as more, they are both objective, but it's a, a different way of relating to the object. So that it's in terms of the the raw quality of mindfulness. It's the object is uh, uh, has got a greater breadth. And with the concentration, the object is narrowed to a, an extremely simple uh, individual focus. So the the analogy they have, um, in another footnote, it says, um, the brain may be likened to a camera that can either be used, um, uh, can either use a wide-angle lens or a zoom lens. Or in cognitive terms, attention can be directed to the more dominant details in a stimulus field or to the entire field, so that it's like what the camera is focusing on is either focuses on a single detail or it focuses on the whole field, but that's both object. The subject is the that, that which is no, that which is knowing what's going on in the camera. So that's the concentration. So the the concentration would be narrowing the field. Yeah. A tight focus, and then the mindfulness is where it's a broader field. Yes. But the, 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 the I would say they're both aspects of the object. Well, the the um, that's how I'm that's how I understand it in terms of the um, the particular contrast between mindfulness and, and concentration and what, and how he's speaking about it here. As he says, the two modes of mental functioning correspond to two different cortical control mechanisms in the brain. So, if you're interested, it's different parts of the brain, and this is from somebody called Brown. Two major cortical control mechanisms involved in selecting and processing information, a frontal system associated with restrictive processing, and a posterior temporal system associated with more wide-ranging processing of information. So that uh, there's a frontal lobe um, control that uh, looks after concentration, and then the posterior temporal lobes look after the mindfulness faculty. So it says. This difference, however, does not imply that the two are incompatible, since during absorption attainment, both are present. But during absorption, sati becomes mainly presence of the mind, when it to some extent loses its natural breadth owing to the strong focusing power of concentration. So that, uh, and if you're familiar with the sutta descriptions of developing concentration, that the Buddha is encouraging a, a quality of mindfulness as the mind focuses on something and absorbs into it that is encouraging the quality of, of mindful, uh, mindfulness and, and uh, recognizing, oh, this is, uh, this is this, this particular state and um, 
it's it's an arisen state. It, it's not something that's me or mine. It's something that, that's wholesome, and so there's a a quality of reflectiveness and uh, I say a mindful awareness of that state, even as the mind is absorbing into it, and that. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting that he, de- uh, the Buddha defines that that can be maintained, that quality of reflective um, awareness of even very, very deep states of absorption, that, that can be maintained up to the, the, um, the uh, all but the very highest levels of, of formless um, concentration, that there can still be that degree of, oh, this is a... a a, um, a, a formed state. This is not me or mine. This is something that has arisen. But the the the, the two highest levels of, of absorption, what's called the the um, uh, attainment of neither perception nor non-perception, neva sanya sanya, and the cessation of perception and feeling, the uh, nirodha samapati, those are too refined. That that the the, uh, the depth of absorption and concentration is is too strong to allow even that degree of reflection to say recognize so oh, this is um, uh, something that's uh, impermanent and has arisen yes Niroda Samapati Uh, well, uh, it's not something I know from direct experience, but it is uh, anagamis, non-returners, and arahants are both supposed to be able to access it, but not every, not every single uh, um, noble being or anagami or arahant would necessarily be able to uh, access that. Uh, I don't think yeah, you have to be an anagami to get the get, to get in the door. Right. <laughs> if you're not an anagami, no entry. Yeah. So what does the Buddhist teachers then? Hmm? The teachers of the Buddha were anagami. Uh, no, they just were, they were accomplished meditators. But um, that that particular that that's only for the the that topmost um, state. So that the other ones, the neither perception nor non-perception. That there's no particular um, spiritual attainment required for that. So that the Buddha's teachers, like Udaka Ramaputta and Alara Kalama, they had the ability to absorb the mind into those very, very peaceful states, but they weren't, um, according to it, they they didn't have this, the, those sort of states of realization of being stream enterers or anagamis or, or such like. But they were just very good uh, concentration. But that last one, the Niroda Samapati. So they say that depends on being an anagami. But Which I, one is that then again? That's the that's the um, the most refined level of concentration. Is there an English? The cessation of perception and feeling, oh, nirodha samapati. I, was I don't think this is a particularly a problem to <laughs> the retreat support crew. <laughs> maybe maybe you guys have. Uh, uh, it's important to get a conceptual map of this territory. Great. If that's the case, then um, we've got a very high, uh, high. Uh, <coughs> Isn't it said that there is no language to express that experiences? Um, that well, there, there's a, uh, there's a label, Niroda Samapati. Uh, I was listening to Commander Maitreya. I just want to 
was interesting, he was talking about this, and he said that the final, the final is when everything absorbs into Nibbana, so it's a living experience of Nibbana. There will be a sense of bliss, but there will be no sense of that which had bliss. Everything else will have absorbed into it, but there will be a knowing of it. Yeah, it's the it's the um, uh, I've heard that that description as well. It's like the uh, <coughs> um, the um, the minds. Well, they, it's a a, 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 moment, a temporary experience of parinibbana. But again, I do not speak about this from personal experience. So. Be nice if I do. I could. <laughs> so let's carry on a little bit here. Because there's some interesting passage about directed and undirected. <clears throat> the difference, however, does not imply that the two are incompatible, since during absorption, attain, uh, absorption attainment both are present. But during absorption, sati becomes mainly the presence of mind, when it to some extent loses its natural breadth owing to the strong focusing power of concentration. The difference between these two becomes evident from the vocabulary employed in a passage from the Satipatthana Samyutta. In this passage, the Buddha recommended that if one is being distracted or sluggish while practicing Satipatthana, one should temporarily change one's practice and develop a calm samatha object of meditation in order to cultivate internal joy and serenity. This he termed a directed form of meditation, panidhaya pavana. Once, however, the mind has been calmed, one can return to an undirected mode of meditation, appanidhaya pavana, namely the practice of Satipatthana. The distinction drawn in the discourse between directed and undirected forms of meditation suggests that, considered on their own, these two modes of meditation are clearly different. At the same time, however, the whole discourse is concerned with their skillful interrelation, clearly demonstrating that whatever the degree of their difference, the two can be interrelated and support each other. So, say for example, you're trying to practice Satipatthana and the mind is sort of drifting here and there, and then, okay, the mind is getting a bit sort of loose and distracted, okay, let's get a bit more focus, so then picking up an object... Uh, focusing the, the attention on the breath, say for example, or listening to the the nada sound, uh, create a stronger sense of focus. Directed uh, panidhana, panidhaya, excuse me, panidhaya, and then once the that level of alertness or arousal and clarity is re-established, there's a, a stronger sense of energy and focus. Um, then that object can be let go of, and then there can be the more broad. Uh, Satipatthana re-established so that's um, uh, a very sort of say, say <coughs> clear instance of the the Buddha talking about the sort of the interrelation uh, of uh, concentration and and mindfulness and and also you and it's useful to see that term of directed and undirected and how Satipatthana has a kind of undirected quality to it like an openness and just being with whatever the flow of experience uh, uh, comprises. The characteristic quality of concentration is to direct, quote-unquote, and apply the mind, focusing on a single object to the exclusion of everything else. Thus the development of concentration promotes a shift from the common structure of experience as a subject-object duality 
towards an experience of unity, the attention absorbed in the object. Concentration, however, thereby excludes a broader awareness of circumstances and of their interrelations. This awareness of circumstances and interrelations is, however, essential in order to become aware of those characteristics of experience whose understanding leads to awakening. In this context, the broadly receptive quality of sati is particularly important. So that sati is, is um, supporting that quality of awareness of circumstances and interrelations, how all the different aspects of the field of what we're perceiving and knowing fit together. These two rather distinct qualities of concentration and mindfulness are combined to some extent in the descriptions of insight meditation by those meditation teachers who emphasize the, quote, dry insight, unquote, approach, dispensing with the formal development of mental calm. They sometimes describe sati as attacking its object in a way that is comparable to a stone hitting a wall. And he's, he's quoting Mahasi Sayadaw there. Venerable Silananda, like a stone hitting the wall, that hitting the object, uh, uh, that hitting of the object is mindfulness. These forceful terms probably represent the need for a considerable degree of effort during contemplation, such prodigious effort being required to compensate for the relatively low degree of concentration developed when following the dry insight approach to awakening. In fact, some of these same meditation teachers consider the bare and equanimous qualities of sati as a more evolved stage of practice, presumably when the more forceful stage of attacking, quote-unquote, an object has fulfilled its role and provided a basis of mental stability. So the... Um, this term, dry insight, that's um, uh, one of the commentarial terms. You have dry insight and wet insight. So the dry is um, insight that does not involve states of absorption, like the jhana and then the other uh, um, things that come along with that. And the, the wet enlightenment or the wet insight is where there is um, the involvement and the, the, uh, the uh, say, the support or the... the um, the attributes of, of absorption as well. So Lumpur Cha uh, tended to emphasize the dry insight um, approach and um, that sort of uh, was uh, his uh, sort of style of, of teaching. And um, But you know, he also taught, as I said, the, the uh, qualities of absorption as well, but he tended to emphasize that, that dry insight aspect of it. And particularly in uh, not making much or not emphasizing the sort of psychic powers and those uh, attainments that come from the uh, deep states of, of uh, concentration. The above way of considering sati may be related to the commentarial division, de, sorry, the commentarial definition of sati as, quote, non-floating, <laughs> unquote, and therefore as plunging into its object. Certainly the absence of floating in sense of distraction is a characteristic of sati, However, to plunge into an object appears to be more a characteristic of concentration, particularly during the progress towards absorption. According to modern scholarship, it seems that this aspect of the commentarial understanding of sati arose because of a misreading or misinterpretation of a particular term. And that um, 
there's a footnote on that from Rupert Gettin. He says that he suggests that the commentarial reading of apilapeti should rather be apilapati, which instead of describe, uh, describing sati as plunging into, would come to mean reminding someone of something. Does that make sense? So that it's a, got a, quite a different meaning, and that it's rather like you know, blessed are the cheesemakers in the the life of Brian, like. <clears throat> one of the most uh, significant spiritual statements, standing at the back of the crowd in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, that the, uh, the members of the, um, the Monty Python team, they say, they, hearing Jesus from the distance, they said, and they, hear, they think he says, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> blessed are the cheesemakers. Instead of peacemakers, they hear cheesemakers. And of course, the um, studious fellow standing next to them immediately chimes in and says, well, of course, when he says cheesemakers, he really means anybody involved in the dairy industry. <laughs> you know, ready to come in and, and make a comment to sort of, even though it was a mishearing, as a, just in that little snippet, that's like the, uh, a large history of, um, of uh, you know, where, where people misread something or they, they miss, something is mis, miscopied by a, uh, in a text and then the, comment, the commentators come in and make, come up with all sorts of wonderful reasons of why, why it's like that. Um, okay, so uh, I, I think probably Rupert Gettin is, is much more accurate there, so it's about reminding um, somebody of something. Now, so though it plays an important part in the development of absorption, considered on, it, on its own, sati is a mental quality distinct from concentration. Indeed, the reason even the attainment of high levels of, of absorption by itself is insufficient for liberating insight is quite probably related to the inhibition of the passive observational qualities of awareness by the strong focusing power of absorption concentration. So that's um, a sort of rather involved way of saying if your mind is, is you're making the effort to absorb into an object, you're tending to switch off that reflective and broader um, quality so that um, that if the effort is to uh, 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 you know, focus 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 then that is inclining away from that well what's going on here and who is it uh, who's this person that's doing the focusing and uh, you know, is this uh, is this not all impermanent and unsatisfactory so that it's um, um, as he says that uh, the High levels of absorption by itself is insufficient for liberating insight because of the inhibition of the qualities of awareness. This, however, does not detract from the fact that the development of concentration fulfills an important role in the context of insight meditation, a topic I will discuss in more detail in Chapter 4, which is the next one. Did I see your hand go up, Ava? Yes. Aha. Uh, I just often get confused about I don't know. <laughs> but some people do. Uh, it's one of those things where people take their own particular angle of approach and they and uh, and it was like in the in the 60s and 70s this was a big issue in Thailand. And you get the sort of you get the the jhana monasteries and the Satipatthana monasteries, and they, 
And so there'd be these, this kind of feuding, um, you know, the reds against the blues. <laughs> and, uh, and so Ajahn Chah was, um, he was very astute. <laughs> so he saw, well, the issue is much more, it's not so much whether it's uh, Satipatthana that matters and, and insight or whether it's concentration that matters. What matters is that you guys are fighting each other. <laughs> that you're grasping an opinion and you're, you're saying we're right and you're wrong. Um, and the, 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 the simile that he used that uh, uh, I, I feel is very helpful, he said it's like a concentration is like a candle. So you've got like one of these candles. So nice big wax candle. Right? Now if we turned all the lights off and we got that candle in our hand, we still can't see if the candle is not lit. So the concentration is like you've got a big potential um, <clears throat> but uh, the, the potential is not being uh, fulfilled, it's not being actualized. Um, and he said, uh, insight is like a match. So uh, the, if, the room, if the lights are off and you strike a match for a, a little bit of time, you can see because the, 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 the match produces light. But the match doesn't have much fuel, it's just a little stick, a little bit of wood. And so it can't last for very long. So the concentration is like, yeah, you've got a lot of potential, but there isn't the vision. And the insight, there's the vision, but you haven't got much to back it up. But you put the two together, you, you use the match to light the candle, and then you've got the, uh, the vision, the illumination from insight, and you've got the, the concentration that, that sustains that over a long period of time. So that is... I mean, I mean clearly they are both included in the number of Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's like Ajahn Chah, he would kind of get exasperated by it. Because the way people talk about it, they'd say, no, 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 yeah, it's, 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 it's completely wrong. You don't, you know, concentration, it's an, it's an obstacle, it's an obstacle. And, he'd, and it's, he would point out, well, it's all the same mind, you know, or just exactly, almost the same words that you would use. Like, well, the, they are all aspects of the Eightfold Path, you know, the, the, and it's the same mind. And, the, and he had a very pragmatic and and sort of experiential approach, and you'd say, "What well, you, know, you need insight to develop samadhi. You need samadhi to develop insight. That, that if you look at how the mind actually functions, you can't. If you couldn't concentrate at all, there's no way you could develop any insight. You just it wouldn't work. It was impossible. And you can't section it out in that in the way that people would talk. So he'd see that the issue is mostly opinions and attachment to opinions." And that if you really looked at how the mind worked, then you'd see that well, the, these these work together, and that. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, as I said, he he would shy away from talking about concentration in terms of telling you know, people. Say, what what level of jhana have I reached, Lumpur? Or, or you know, um, I, I've, I've reached this level. I want to reach the next level. What should I do? And he would he would uh, tend to to not. Um, support that way of thinking because um, everyone's minds work in slightly different ways yeah. and he tried to 
it discourages that sense of trying to figure out what stage you're at or, or wanting to get something else. Um, because then you also you get your, you know, one person comparing themselves with someone else or feeling that they, sometimes they'd, they'd overlook the, the useful qualities that they do have because they're, they're, they're looking for some other sign. Uh, or like he, he would, uh, you know, like in the Mahasi, um, who was very, very influential in Thailand uh, after that, the Great Council of 1956-57, they, they brought back the Mahasi um, uh, method to, to, to be taught in Thailand, and so it was very influential. But you have these 16 stages of insight. And again, people would say, well, I've I, I reached stage five, and I really want to get on to stage six. And, and, uh, and so, uh, again, Lumpur would steer people away from that. Like, uh, to, to don't think of it because he, what he would realize was that, well, yeah, that's a, what you're describing. That's the characteristic of stage five, but um, that doesn't mean to say that you're between stage four and stage six. It just means that's what you're experiencing at this time, and and it might be that someone is uh, has an experience that's a sort of stage nine of the progress of insight or stage fourteen, and they haven't experienced you know five six seven eight and, uh, and nine along the way it's just and he saw that people's minds don't work all in the same way it's not tidy and in neat boxes like that so he he didn't like to use those kind of structures of sort of first jhana second jhana third jhana and stage one stage two stage three or the or the different aspects of anapanasati because the subjective experience of, of people was so different uh, so he uh, he tried to encourage more of a sense of self self reliance and, and looking, uh, helping people to see for themselves. Well, is it is it quiet? Is it not? <laughs> is it uh, what are the what are the effects of of your practice? What, what's it leading to? And then, and then seeing if you if more focus would be helpful or more reflection would be helpful, and then you know, guiding things in that very straightforward, tangible way. But speaking of mindfulness, I see it's almost ten past seven, so it's nearly time for the the next thing. So to, uh, tomorrow we'll have some readings from uh, Lumpo Cha, since it's his twenty uh, fourth uh, death anniversary, January sixteenth tomorrow. So we'll we'll um, put these aside for a day and uh, have uh, uh, tomorrow is Saturday the sixteenth of January. So half moon, it's the 16th of January, Ajahn Chah's anniversary. But we will not be a reading here. Yes, we will. There's a Dhamma talk. Oh, there's the Dhamma talk in the evening, that's right. But in the the morning, um, instead of the morning reflection in the temple at 8.30, I'll do a reading. And then before the mealtime, I'll do a a couple of short readings before the mealtime. No meeting at 6? No, no, no meeting at 6. That's the evening gathering. Thank you. Pandamayam damakataya sadukaram dadamase Would the sisters lead the evening chanting this evening? Yeah. <laughs>
An invitation you can't refuse, right? Caroline? Speed question. Speed. It is subjective, but I'm glad to know that's that's hitting the mark. So good. Yes, I never quite know what people mean when they say these things are subjective. I mean, there's a certain number of words per minute that one covers. It's subjective. So, like, when I'm chanting something, I might feel like I'm chanting at a very um, collected pace and then someone says Ajahn you're going so fast really you know if I, yeah. and uh, particularly if I'm doing like the ordination chanting or something and if I'm doing a solo then it's like really and like, oh yeah it's really really quick like, on the subjective side I feel like I'm chanting at a normal pace, but they're hearing it. What they're hearing is like, wow, you're really racing along. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with them. <laughs> so yes. that's what I mean by subjective. It's like, from my side, it, it sounds like, Pubakarna, Pubakichani, Samapetwa, Imasa, Nisinasa, Bikuzangatsa, Anumati, Abadi, Makango, Desi, Donga, Jason, and Karomi. That's very slow to me. So. Well, good, I'm it's, glad to hear. It's working for me now. Oh, good. So. But he does use quite a lot of long words. Yes. So. 